The Mike Tomano Happening. Don't watch the news for a while. Just try to find comedy and find love and, I don't know, be good to each other, okay? It's from a video that Bob Saget did right before he passed away. It's on YouTube where he's talking to fans and talking about how excited he is about the tour that he's on and how much he's enjoying doing stand-up and making people laugh. And then he kind of just pauses at the end and says those words that really resonate with me. Don't watch the news for a while. Just try to find comedy and find love and, I don't know, be good to each other, okay? I got a hell of a send-off. Now, I've only seen, like, maybe a few episodes of Full House, maybe ten. My daughter discovered it in Rerun when she was an adolescent. And I've seen some of his stand-up, which is very good, very funny. I enjoyed, um, recently, a YouTube conversation that Bob Saget had with Gilbert Gottfried, one of my other favorite comics, and... It's a great chat worth seeking out, and Saget's kind of sweet demeanor is offset by his very mischievous sense of humor, and it really won me over. In fact, I've been going through Bob Saget's YouTube channel, Bob Saget's Here For You. It's got a lot of great conversations. I haven't delved into too many, but uh, it is full of candid conversations featuring Saget with you know his fellow comedian friends, actors, and other relevant guests. So it's worth checking out. And since his death, you know, it seems like the consensual sentiment among colleagues and friends is an acknowledgement of his extreme kindness. There's numerous stories out there of his support and assistance to new comics. He would go to see them in small clubs. He would give them encouragement. And in the world of entertainment, that means a lot. And I found out he was also a board member of the Scleroderma research foundation and he had lost a sister to that disease so he dedicated a lot of time and effort to that foundation and did benefits for them and raised a lot of money and obviously raised awareness for this disease that oftentimes gets misdiagnosed which was the case with his sister and so in the end bob is remembered for bringing joy and laughter to millions of people he's remembered for his generous charity work and his kindness and support of others. So when you strip life to its essentials, what better attributes are there to be remembered for? So Godspeed, Bob Saget, and thank you for all you've done for the world. And I, you know, I posted some stuff about him because, like I said, I, I've i only seen his stand-up and his, uh, you know, full house stuff in the YouTube videos. And some people were like jumping in on on the uh, social media threads saying that there was some stuff that came up about him. But you know what? I'm just going to remember the cat like I know him. And it just seems like today everybody's looking to dig up dirt on people. And I don't know. I I didn't delve into it. It's not interesting to me. I'm sure if it was that catastrophic, I would have been well aware of it and it would have been a precursor to all the tributes that came out about him so to those of you who are haters or if there's a rumor mill out there whatever i'm just saying everybody's coming out saying this guy was a wonderful person a warm kind gentleman 
and he helped others in his business. So, you know, I'm going to remember him that way. But anyway, it's, it's one of those things. Anytime you bring up a celebrity death, people get all bent out of shape because, well, what about, what about, what about? Yeah, I know. Kids die, soldiers, first responders, police officers. We know that. But I think it's that personal connection that we have to celebrities that make people, you know, we all kind of know these people from their work. And if it touches us, it's a personal thing. It doesn't diminish anyone else's death by any stretch of the imagination. But that's a whole other topic for a whole other show. By the way, this week, we're going to introduce the panel. It's going to be a revolving group of folks that I find interesting, friends that I know that have uh, inspired me and whose taste I find interesting. Now, that doesn't mean that I agree with them on every book, film, album, band, whatever, but I respect their taste and I'm interested in it. So the revolving panel will be involved in a series of uh, programs here as we continue on with our episodes and as we grow the show a little bit in 2022 like to expand on the format and do different things. So today, uh, you know, I'm going to go to someone who, this is an archived interview and so many people talked about it and requested it and said, I remember the first time I heard it, especially people who are into jazz music or musicians. It was an interview I did with Yusuf Latif. And for me, he was a game changer. And that's going to be the subject of next week's podcast game changers works of art artists uh films books albums that change the way that you listen to music or saw film or read books it raised either the bar or it touched you in some way that had a residual effect it stayed with you so when i discovered yusuf latif uh it was definitely a game changer for me he played uh the flute primarily in the tenor saxophone And he also played oboe and bassoon. And he was so innovative, not only in the music that he put out, but his approach to music. And so I'm going to go back to this interview that I did. I'm going to say around 2000, hmm, 2002, maybe. Yeah, 2002 or 2003, or could have been 2001, um, because there's there's a slight reference to 9-11 in it. But... I want you to enjoy the words and the spirit of this great, great musician, artist, and human being. He and I became friends somewhat after the uh, interview, and we kept in touch up until his death in December of 2013. And he was always very kind and very considerate. And he's such a gentle giant of a man. And it comes through in this interview. So if you're a musician, an artist, a writer, whatever you happened to do listen to his description of the approach he has to not only life but to his work and i think you'll be inspired yusuf latif from the archives on the mike tomano happening one of the most prolific and profound artists of our times is yusuf latif and he's with us on the phone uh, from massachusetts right yes Okay, welcome to the program. It's great to have you with us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. The uh, approach that you bring to music and the depth that you 
use in your artistry is uh, something that really needs to be rediscovered by generations uh, continually. And, and I, I'd like to ask you about your creative process. And I'll start by asking you, you were born in Chattanooga, Tennessee. What was your earliest exposure to music? Uh, I guess it was uh, uh, my father used to sing, uh, not professionally, but he had a beautiful uh, tenor voice. And uh, that was my first exposure. And my mother played the piano by ear. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, did you do? Did you uh, get some of her musical talents? With are you able to pick out notes by uh, by hearing it? Well, I didn't. Not at the time, but not I, at the I, time. I, I was definitely influenced. Right, and and then you moved uh, later. You moved uh, to Detroit. What was the impact that the city of Detroit had on your uh, artistic vision? Oh, well, there were many uh, influences in New York. Uh, the earliest influence was. Uh, a trumpet player named Buddy Bell and a tenor saxophonist named Al Farish. Uh, they played uh, in the pit band at the Arcady Theater in Detroit. And I used to sit uh, right in front of them and listen to them play and also observe the, the, the theatrics that went on on the stage. Right, right. And uh, I think that your rise to fame in, in jazz was really the golden era of experimentation in music. Wouldn't you agree? Well, well I agree with everything uh, but the word jazz. It's an ambiguous term. Right, right. And I found out later that uh, the music really is uh, music which comes from the physical and the mental and spiritual self, uh, which is uh, contained in the word I coined called auto physio-psychic music. And now, uh, if you frame it with that term, I, I, perhaps I can answer you. Okay. Then, well, let's go back into into uh, how you started your career and how you began to uh, go into the realm that uh, became audio-physio-psychic music. And, uh, and, and your blending of genres, I would guess, was definitely uh, part of that. Yes, well... Um, it began, of course, I started playing the alto saxophone in high school. Um, and that was the beginning of the first instrument that I had. Um, and, of course, there were influences uh, in Detroit, local influences. There are people like um, with a high school band I played with, the Matthew Rucker Band. Um and that's mentioned in my autobiography, uh, The Gentle Giant. And uh, there were itinerant musicians who would come to Detroit every week uh, in two places. One was the Greystone Ballroom, where I heard Count Basie and uh, uh, Jimmy Lunsford, Andy Kirk for the first time, and every week there was a, new, a dance, and one of the big bands of those of that period would appear there. And also there was a, the Paradise Theater where there would be a stage show every week. Uh, and, then, and then I heard people like Billy Eckstein, mm -hmm. uh, Tiny Bradshaw, uh, Earl Hines, uh, you name it. And of course, the, 
that was a continuous flow of influences. And, and there were local musicians also that I was influenced by, like, for example, uh, Barry Harris, um, who they call him the high priest of music in Detroit. Uh, and I studied with him. And, uh, of course, that was Kenny Burrell. He was the younger. And Paul Chambers lived down the street from me. Uh, Doug Watkins oh. also was an influence. And uh, Roy Brooks also. Uh, Louis Hayes. Um, and there was the, the Jones brothers, Thad Jones. And Hank Jones would come down from, I think it was Pontiac, they would come down and and uh, perform with us. So there was a, a galore of influences, right. itinerant influences and local influences in Detroit. Or was the music basically being learned from each other, or were people pulling influences from uh, different countries or, or maybe different uh, styles of music that they had heard? Well, I think we learned it from each other. We would, it was an exchange of, of knowledge going on uh, constantly. In fact, uh, I remember Roy Brooks, that he rented a house where we could play after hours, uh, and uh, this exchange would go on you're in and you're out. Hmm. It seems to me when someone decides to use music to express themselves, uh, that's the mental. It kind of it kind of starts out with a passion. Their heart is into it, and they want they have an, a message they want to get out or, or an expression they need to to bring to fruition. And then the physical would be learning their chops and learning their craft and learning the actual instrument that they have. Yeah. And when those two things balance out, and and you're not just playing to get your point across, or just playing to show off your chops, when those two kind of get digested through the soul, I'm guessing that's the true expression that comes out in uh, autophysio-psychic music. Am I close? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I concur. Um, you know, uh, I think uh, one, one of the romances of American history is the music of the African-Americans. Uh, it's a... Uh, it, 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 since uh, 1865, since the slaves were, were re, slavery was abolished in America, the musicians, the African Americans, have taught they taught themselves how to play this music, uh, and you could call it an uh, occupational uh, uh, tradition, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, learning the music, like um, the history says that John Philip Sousa's band discarded the instruments, the old broken instruments on the dump heaps after the Civil War, and the slaves picked these instruments up and taught themselves to play them, uh, in spite of not being admitted in schools at that time. Uh, and it's, it's an occupational uh, um, music, if you will. It, it began that way. But now um, you can, one can say that it's uh, uh, one of the most uh, viral forms of culture created in America, the music of the African Americans. And definitely the cornerstone of uh, all of our modern music. 
Absolutely. Now, you you went to Wayne State University, and you studied... Yeah, I had two courses at Wayne State University mm-hmm. uh, between 1950 and 1960. Um, and then I moved to New York in 1960. I joined Cannonball Adderley in 61. Uh, I worked with him for two years, uh, 62, and then 63, I, I enrolled in the Manhattan School of Music uh, in a degree program where I uh, majored in flute, and I got a bachelor's degree. A year, a year later, I received my master's in music education. Um, that was in 1971, I entered this the new school for social research and I studied philosophy um, for a year. I studied the pre-Socratics, the existentialists, and the pragmatists. Um, Then in 72 I was offered entrance into a doctoral program in education at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. Uh, And in by 1975, I, I got my degree in education, my doctorate from the University of Massachusetts. Isn't that, what an accomplishment. There had to be so many times. I mean, if I could spend all day with you, I would, just talking about uh, adversity and obstacles and times when you didn't want to go on. I'm sure they came. It's human nature. And oh, yes. what's the drive that kept kept you going and kept you fulfilling this life that you've led? Well, uh, you know, I embraced uh, the, the religion of Islam in the, through the Ahmadiyya movement uh, in Islam. And there's a saying, uh, there are a couple of things that rested in, in my heart. And one is, seek knowledge even if it's in China. The second one was, seek knowledge from the cradle to the grave. And I embrace uh, that ideology, and that's had lots to do with what kept me moving in the world of education and seeking knowledge. And it's so gratifying uh, to learn uh, that which one does not know, and also learning how to help others. I remember the band used to we used to play for the orphans. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we'd go to different cities, California, uh, Michigan, uh, Michigan, et cetera. And we just play for free uh, because the teaching of Islam says, uh, beware of your treatment of orphans. And so I have a warm spot in my heart for the orphans. And that's, uh, that's so gratifying to try to help uh, someone's life uh, be a little brighter. How does your religious belief uh, differ from maybe uh, how the average American is viewing Islam at this time in our lives? Well, to me, uh, the teachings that I embrace in the Ahmadiyya movement, which was formed by Mursar Ghulam Ahmed of Qadian, India, uh, the, the essence of, of the practice of Islam brings one to the ideology of love for all and hatred for none. It's a religion of love and compassion for for all of humanity. And 
otherwise I, I wouldn't be there. You know. mm-hmm. And I, my father and mother taught me the importance of love, and the Ahmadiyya movement teaches love for, for all humanity. It's the universal commitment to the love of all human beings and things. And that was the attraction for me. Do you keep in touch with any of the students that you've taught that went on oh, to careers yes. in music? Yes, I do. I have, uh, let me see, several students. One uh, stu- student uh, went to England uh, to work on the, his doctorate in uh, in archaeology. Hmm. And he's also a talented violinist. Uh I uh, have an, another student uh, who, who uh, got their master's recently from New York University, and they plan to go on for a doctorate later. Uh, another student is at UCLA now working on a master's in music. Uh, and I have an Armenian student who is now on tour in Europe with a group, and he plans to come. Hmm. and further his education. And I, I'm very proud of him. I bet. It's got to be very rewarding. Yeah, it is rewarding, yeah. If, if I can help a person improve their life, uh, that's my pay right there. Yeah, right on. I want to talk about uh, your published works. Not only do you have some musical composition books and theory books, uh, such as the flute book yes, of the uh, blues. and. Uh, you know, I started my own record company in 92. It's called YAL Records. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have over 25 uh, uh, CDs that are now being digitally presented to whoever wants to purchase on Apple uh, iTunes Music Store. And uh, that's very gratifying. Oh, and, yeah. And uh, recently I... I did an album with uh, the two French musicians, the Belmondo brothers, uh, Lionel Belmondo and Stefan Belmondo. Uh, it was a 13-piece uh, group, and they recorded uh, some of my own music, like a, a tune named after my daughter, Iqbal, mm-hmm. my date, late daughter, and uh, the song called Morning, uh, that was recorded for Savoy Records in '56, um, and I've done two tours uh, with him in in, in, uh, in France and Spain and Monaco recently. Hmm. Um, and I, I like to the mention of I uh, I've written a piano uh, concerto, but it hasn't been performed yet. And uh, <laughs> recently I started on my second symp- symphony. You're going to make us feel bad. Some of us are, <laughs> we're 40 years old. It's all we can do to get to the weekend. And here you're writing <laughs> symphonies. Well, God bless it. So now, well, what? What, what does the day entail for Yusuf Latif? You oh, wake I'm up, busy. I'm busy. I bet you are. I, I always have something to do. Where yeah. does that impl- influence come from? Where, what's the, what's the, uh, the well, impetus? Well, you know, I, I, they trained me at the Manhattan School of Music to, to know what a symphony is. Is a sonata allegro form, et cetera. And so I say, now is my time to exercise some of the things I've learned, learned in school, you know? Right. Well, here you go. 
And so that's why I attempt to, I do these things. They may, I may never hear them. Don Bird said, you may not ever hear them. But at least they'll be here for posterity, you know. You've been on over 100 wonderful recordings. You've played with some wonderful, magical musicians in your lifetime. And you continue every day to discover new things, whether you're writing literature or music books or concerts. Mm-hmm. I wanted to throw some names at you and just, uh, I, I know it's not fair to sum them up in just a few words, but if I could just get a few thoughts from some of your contemporaries from you, okay? Sure. Miles Davis? Uh, well, I see. That's a good question. Well, when I think of Miles, I think of one of the person, uh, one of the linchpins of uh, inspiration uh, who advanced the uh, uh, the music of African American musicians. Uh, he is even an educator mm-hmm. because he presented uh, what can happen uh, as a result of the accumulation of technique and the refinement of of, of, of methods, right? Of presentations. Yeah, like you, there's a lot of restraint in his playing. He. Every time he speaks through an instrument, it, it, it's meaningful, and, and every note counts. Yes. It, it, it was as though uh, he was in search of the most inviting kind of musical expression each time he played. Charles Mingus. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was a very creative uh, individual. I had the pleasure of working with him in 1960. Uh, he was... Inspiring. Uh, he was an original thinker. Uh, he was one who would go deep into the intuition uh, to, to process his music. And uh, I think uh, that's one of the most wonderful things uh, that an artist can have is his intuition, to use, to use it. And Mingus had that. How about Elvin Jones, who we lost recently? Oh, he was, he was a dynamic percussionist. Uh, I mean... I don't know if you, you had a chance to hear him and, and, and uh, John Coltrane. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that was it was an unusual listening period to, to sit and listen to the, to the group. Right. They have an album by them, Meditations, which it seems as though they're, it, it, it's, it's really evident that they're speaking through their instruments to each other. Obviously, yes, absolutely. Uh, it's definitely a conversation. I um, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you also about Dizzy Gillespie, who was always, when I was a kid, you know, my mother would always call me to watch Dizzy play, and the first thing that uh, drew a young boy to watching this man was his giant cheeks when he would blow his horn, and also his wonderful disposition. He seemed like he was always so happy. Yeah, he, he was not only happy, he was also a kind man. Uh, and he re- was kind to the musicians. I remember when I joined him uh, in 1948. Um, I joined him and uh, he sent me a ticket to, to Chicago. I was in Chicago then. I flew to L.A. and uh, that coming uh, fall we were to play in Detroit and I was going to home to to play with, uh, with the great Dizzy Gillespie. And I didn't have an overcoat. And he had a big Mackinac overcoat with a big Mouton collar, mm-hmm. and he just gave it to me. And, and I, I was so grateful. He was a very kind man. 
the kind of stuff you don't forget. No, that's why I haven't forgotten. It was an act of kindness, you know. Well, your music has touched so many, so have your, have your teachings. I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for your music and for your inspiration, and God bless. Oh, thank you. May God bless you, and remember me in your prayers. I'd, be, I'd appreciate it. There it is. Wow. Yusuf Latif. And the Mike Tomano happening for this week. And uh, we'll continue to dig into the archives. We've got some new interviews coming up real soon with some really interesting people. And the panel is going to be introduced next week as we discuss game-changing art in our lives. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe wherever you stream your podcasts. And uh, I wish you and yours peace and love. Mm-hmm.